it's all about All the folks you meet By sitting in a diner Or out in the street Catch up with the news Get your point of view I want to hear what unravels I'll see you in my travels And I'll be hanging around Covering lots of ground and good afternoon. Welcome to Travels with Charlie, your host, Charlie Papillo. Great to be here with you today. we got a great program lined up for you. I'm going to tell you about that coming up in just a moment. First, uh, just got to give thanks to the sponsors that uh, that keep this show on the air. Some friends that I've known for many, many years, my, my years in broadcasting. And I uh, want to just uh, thank Casella Waste Systems, Casella.com. Zero sort recycling, helping to keep things out of the landfill. We're going to be talking today with Jeff Weld, and we've got some great news uh, from Casella. He's going to fill us in on that. Uh, my friends uh, over at Jolly Convenience Stores, uh, uh, hot coffee, sandwiches, uh, ice-cold uh, soft drinks, fuel, of course, home of the daily smile. We used to say the daily smile under the mask. Well, we don't have to worry about that mask anymore, do we? Hopefully, hopefully not. And if you want to do some traveling, well, Milne Travel American Express, they've been doing it since 1975. And Scott Milne and the crew, their travel specialists, they searched the lowest airfares via all the databases out there exclusive to the travel industry, going to get you the best deal. So check it out. Uh, MilmTravel.com. Today's lineup. Man, we got a great program lined up for you. Let me tell you, I say this all the time, but this is just a great one. Uh, you know, visiting with some folks that I've had on uh, my previous uh, shows uh, many, many years ago, of course. Uh, Stephen Russell Payne, a good friend and author, local author, Cliff Walking and Life on a Cliff. Uh, author, uh, a new novel called You Were Always There. He will be joining us. As I mentioned, Jeff Weld with the Casella Waste Sustainability Spotlight. My first guest, however, this afternoon has served on the Burlington Police Department as an officer, deputy chief, police chief in Colchester and uh, interim chief in Burlington. She's worked as a consultant and instructor and most recently was named by Government Scott, Governor Scott to lead the Department of Public Safety. So won't you please welcome the Commissioner of Public Safety, Jen Morrison. Jen, good afternoon. Welcome to Travels with Charlie. Well, hello, my friend. How are you? Well, I'm doing wonderful, and, and congratulations to you. Uh, you got a new grandchild, and there's just so many good things happening. And, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, you, know, you and I share some things that we, we stepped away from, from a job, and then they just keep dragging you back in. And, and here you are, uh, the Commissioner of Public Safety now. Yeah, it's a little bit like an undertow you just can't, can't get out of, right? Um, no, I'm really honored to serve uh, as a member of the governor's cabinet in this position. And um, I, I got turned on to the world of uh, public safety by Mike Sherling when he was the commissioner, and he brought me in to do some pretty specific stuff. And then I became his deputy commissioner. And I got to tell you, this is just a great agency with so, so much happening in it. I'm still learning every day about the amazing things our men and women do here in the Department of Public Safety. So, and, you know, amazing things. Jen, Jen, you are the first woman in that position. You've been a leader for much of your career. 
inspiration for other women to serve in a male-dominated career. What's your message to other women to serve? Uh, follow your passion. Well, who cares what your gender is? <laughs> follow your passion. If you bring authenticity and skill and experience and you have credibility and you bring uh, a love of relationships, because trust me, it's, that's what it's about at the end is relationships, um, you're going to go, you're going to do fine. You're going to, Vermont's the place to do it. And women are at the table everywhere. And I'm, uh, I know you say I'm a role model. I hope that's true. But boy, I think, uh, I think we got to get to a place real soon where it's not such a big deal that a woman is the first in a male dominated field. So yeah. just get out there, get after your passion. I think you're right. And I, and I think we're getting there. However, we do have some concerns, obviously, with with staffing shortages across Vermont and a, and a top priority to maintain public safety. Uh, Vermont State Police numbers, they're low. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, Jen? Sure. You know, it's not unique to the state police. It's actually a nationwide staffing um, shortage in law enforcement and, and other public safety sectors, although I will say in Vermont emergency management and fire safety uh specific to the state level. We are fully staffed. However, um, the Vermont State Police are experiencing a very similar situation to others. We have uh, several dozen uh, vacancies, and then when you couple your actual vacancies with things like people who are unavailable because they're deployed or they're on a long-term family leave or an injury leave or they're away at a lengthy training it creates, you know, operational strain to fill the, the shifts that need to be filled. So we are not unique in that sense. It's happening all across the state and the country. Uh, but, again, the men and women out in the field who are doing the work, they are throwing their shoulder to the wheel, working a lot of overtime and getting the job done. Commissioner of Public Safety Jen Morrison, my guest this afternoon on Travels with Charlie. Questions or comments, you can join us at 244-1777 or 1-877-291-8255. Jen, you were very critical of Burlington City Council to cut their number of police officers by as much as 30%. We've seen crime rise significantly in Burlington, and officer ranks are an all-time low uh, and recently, the Vermont State Police have been called in to help police the city. How does that impact the Vermont State Police numbers? And most importantly, who's paying for that? Yeah, it's a great question. So let me just back up to where you started, which is that I hope my letter was not very critical. I hope it was appropriately forecasting the conditions as I saw them from my position and my experience in the city of Burlington. Um you know, and I reflect on the, the, the situation as I was leaving as interim police chief. And I, you know, th- there's nobody who intended this for the, for this to be the outcome. If they did, then they're really not truly interested in public service. But, um, you know, I don't think there's any member of the city council that was in place at the time that was trying to create an unstable or unsafe situation in the city. But alas, here we are where the Burlington police ranks are drastically depleted, and um, I want to make sure I'm clear that when the Vermont State Police have gone into the city, it's been under one of two conditions. One is what we've always done historically. Uh, If we respond with one of our special teams or we respond to a certain event or circumstance that exceeds local capacity, and that has never changed. That's always been the role of the state police as a backdrop for uh, resources that local communities don't have. 
The other circumstance that you mentioned is on two occasions we have uh, sent troopers in from our uh, uh, critical action team who volunteered to perform overtime, so it did not impact their regular duties. And they went in to be a high-visibility deterrent in the key areas downtown. Uh, On one occasion, it was generally in the downtown Church Street Marketplace area, and the other time it was specific to, like, the Church in Maine and City Hall Park area. Uh, and these are, as again, this is an overtime role. We are tracking the hours that um, are spent there, and we intend to uh, submit a bill to the city of Burlington uh, because this is, you know, something that's unusual and goes yeah. beyond what we would normally uh, provide to a community. So Burlington is, is going to be paying the freight for the kind of extras beyond what the rest of the state gets on an ongoing basis. We, we've seen the drug crimes at an all-time high, shootings at an all-time high. We can assume that the majority of them are drug-related. Uh, with all of this going on, uh, certainly, you know, in the city coming to you asking for help, uh, how do you not say that this is what you asked for? Deal with it. Oh, I would never say that. I mean, first off, I don't believe that's what anyone asked for. I, I, I think... People had ideas about reform, and they might certainly didn't intend for this to be the outcome. But um, it would be real easy to say this is a self-inflicted wound. Deal with it yourself. And candidly, mm-hmm. I've gotten a lot of phone calls and emails from other towns saying exactly that. And why are you helping them? And the answer is because we are the state of Vermont. We're not going to leave one one municipality to go it alone when they are in an imminent public safety uh, crisis. And if we lose Burlington as the economic driver and the entertainment capital of the state, then everybody suffers. So there really is no good reason, nor is there any conscionable reason why we would say just go solve it on your own. Uh, It's a little bit like any disaster that happens in Vermont. We all put our our best ideas and our best resources together to solve the problem and, and learn from it and move on. So that's that's the space we're in right now is we're trying to learn from the last two and a half years. Um, we're trying to pool resources where appropriate to meet the public's safety needs. Um, you know, we, we can't have Burlington becoming unsafe at every at every turn it benefits no one absolutely commissioner of public safety jen morrison my guest this afternoon on travels with charlie 244-1777 or 1-877-291-8255 if you have a question or a comment this afternoon we'd love to hear from you let's talk a little bit about uh, recruitment efforts as we we hear about specifically the burlington police department down at all-time low numbers uh, what's being done? Let's talk about the time frame in hiring recruits, which is very important because it doesn't happen immediately. You don't just say, okay, you know, we have an interview and you start on Monday. That doesn't happen. No, it takes a year to get an officer up and operating independently. From the time they drop an application in, it takes months to go through all the hiring processes and, um, a final selection to be made, and then we have to wait for the police academy to start. So there's two and sometimes three academies a year, uh, and those are your opportunities to get your folks certified. So, you know, you might hire someone in just theoretically, say, December, but there might not be an academy starting till February. You know, you have 
that period of time to either do some internal training with them uh, or you wait to hire them. And then you've got four months of training at the academy and then you've got approximately four months of field training uh, and then they're on probation for a while. So yeah. you've got a good year from the time somebody really commits to the process before they can be in a car answering calls for service on their own. So, so there's not really any way you can you can speed it up. I mean, you've kind of explained anything that you can do, but beyond that, uh, there's not much you can do, right, Jen? Well, you can bring back folks who, are, who have been certified, maybe get them recertified. You can try and... Uh, Use part-time resources. There's there's things you can do, but they're they're band-aids. The reality is, we need to get back to the time when being a police officer was regarded as an honorable profession, where the police co-produce public safety with other stakeholders in the community. That the the police are really seen as an integral part of the community and not as. Um, you know, the villain, which is sort of the narrative that has been spun up in some communities. So bringing, bringing back the desire for people to serve their communities in this capacity. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that agencies are doing. I know some of them have passed some very uh, attractive uh, union contracts that up their wages. And there's just no one thing that's going to make it come back, Charlie. It really has to be a holistic hit the reset button about how we talk about police, how we portray police in the media, but in our, our public discourse, and, you know, make reasonably competitive total compensation packages so that people, that we don't constantly lose out to the private sector. 244-1777 or 1-877-291-8255 to talk with uh, my guest this afternoon on Travels with Charlie, Commissioner of Public Safety, Jen Morrison. Let's go to Burlington. Dale on the phone line with uh, Jen Morrison on Travels with Charlie. Good afternoon, uh, Dale. Good afternoon, Charlie. Good afternoon, Commissioner Morrison. Uh, I've already congratulated the commissioner on her recent uh, assignment um, on a other radio show. And on that show, I forgot to mention one thing. Um, I mentioned that several of the former uh, public safety commissioners had been Burlington police chiefs. Um, also, several other leaders of professional departments have come from the ranks of the Burlington Police Department. One thing that I would like to add that all of those individuals have in common is they were trained and tutored by probably the person that I most respect in Burlington, former Chief Kevin Scully, a man's man. <laughs> oh, he, you know what? He's a woman's man, too. I'll tell you what, <laughs> Kevin Scully is just an iconic uh, gentleman. And, yes, all of the people that, I, that you're referencing, Tom Tremblay, Mike Sherling, and myself, uh, Sean Burke and a variety of others who have gone on to lead uh, departments in Vermont uh, from BPD. Lynn Button, we were Dave all... DeMag, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. We were all uh, trained under his tutelage, and um, I think that's a little bit of what I mean by the we have to get back to policing being regarded as an honorable profession where you're there to help your, your fellow citizen. And um, he was the poster child for service above self, for always knowing your constituency, whether it's your employees or the communities and neighborhoods that you're assigned to, 
but really getting to know people and know their story so that you can connect with them and build relationships because that is the most effective tool I've ever encountered in policing is relationships and getting people to talk to you and trust you. So uh, thank you for giving a shout out to a tremendous mentor and, and really a true gentleman, Kevin Scully. He he did hand select a few of us to to, to really be given uh, extra assignments and responsibilities, and I hope we have lived up to his his trust. You all have, and you all deserved it. You made good choices. Have thank, a good day. thank you, sir. Thank you, Dale. Thanks for your call, Dale in Burlington. Let's uh, go right back to the phone lines of one eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. Wade from Moortown with my guest this afternoon, Public Safety Commissioner Jen Morrison. Go ahead, Wade. Good afternoon, Wade. What's your question or comment for our guest today? Oh, we just lost uh, Wade. Um, l- let's talk about some of the staffing shortages across Vermont. Uh, a top priority to maintain public safety, obviously. Uh, Vermont State Police, n- low numbers. Um, let- let's talk a little bit about that because that all comes into recruitment efforts and, you know, how do we recruit more people? <laughs> Well, you know, we've tried just about everything we can think of, and we've also tried things that we didn't think of because we have really started tapping into other resources that traditionally have not been in that, you know, at the table about how do we get more recruits. We are now um, advertising and attending job fairs at historically black colleges. We recently had a uh, booth at the Big E down in Massachusetts, which was apparently the largest attendance ever on Vermont Day. Yes, it Big was. E. Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying to get some visibility outside the state and um, recruit uh, more diverse applicants who are really interested in, in service and in teamwork. Um, so we have also engaged with a new marketing uh company that is hopefully going to give the Vermont State Police some fresh ideas for not just how to communicate and where to communicate, but the the what, the messaging on how we attract people to this profession. But, you know, Charlie, I just want to come back to this. Until we hit the reset button on the rhetoric and the vitriol in our communities about the, the police and trying to vilify the police as somehow being the root of all evil, we will not be successful. So, you know, my my hope is that we can get back to the Vermont of my earlier years mm-hmm. in policing where all stakeholders affected by a particular topic would come together and truly put their best effort into solutions, not into finger-pointing, name-calling, and, and uh, vilification. That, that's where I hope we can get to. Wade from Moortown joining us on the line at one eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. Good afternoon, Wade. What's your question or comment for Commissioner of Public Safety Jen Morrison? Wade, uh, are you there? Yes. I'm yeah. Yeah, hey, Wade, go ahead. You're you're on with uh, with Jen. You. I love your show. Uh, so what I want to say is, what always irritated me in my life is how people treated policemen and why the only time they appreciate a police is when they're in trouble and they call them. So then they learn to respect them. And what I miss is when the police used to walk, walk around uh, in Burlington up and down the street and you would stop and talk to talk 
to them because they that's what they did. They wanted to talk with people. Wade, thanks for your call this afternoon. Jen, let's get your comments on that. And I'm old enough to remember, you know, growing up in Burlington when, you know, the police uh, would walk a beat and you might even know oh, their name and they knew your name. Hey, I'm old enough to have walked that beat <laughs> a few times. Uh, yeah, back in the day, you walked the Church Street Marketplace for a couple of tours, tours or four months at a time before you got to get in a car. Um and we frequently would be assigned to foot posts, whether that was in the old North End or another place that, you know, the, the officer in charge determined needed some extra visibility. Um, and, you know, Wade's point is really terrific that um, that he misses that. He misses having the beat cop, the neighborhood cop. Well, friends, that type of policing, which is incredibly effective, is resource rich. You have to have enough bodies to cover all the emergencies and the calls that require you to be in a car, you know, going call to call in order to also have the resources to be able to get out on foot patrols away from your cruiser, taking time to have conversations and build those relationships outside of the need to be mobile and respond to, to, to emergencies. Sure. So, you know, you Community policing is not cheap policing. It's resource intensive. And will we ever get to those numbers again, Jen? Uh, I know you obviously you're you're hopeful to that, but uh, you know even in Burlington, at the numbers that we were prior to the to, to the downturn, we still didn't have enough to to have them walking a beat. Um, you know, I think we will get back there. I don't know when it will be because I think that uh, history is going to show that that type of policing is really the most effective policing. Um, so I think we'll get there. It's going to take five to ten years to unwind the damage that has been done in the communities that chose to defund their police. Uh, I've yet to see a single positive example of defunding the police from across the country. Um, the idea was that we'd take the money away from police departments and we'd invest it in other community supports such as uh, mobile mental health crisis response workers, substance abuse treatment centers, things that help to stabilize communities. And the reality is uh, that it hasn't happened and it hasn't driven down crime. Uh, there aren't people to work those jobs that we would want to stand up to meet unmet social service needs. So um, I think it's going to take five to ten years in Burlington to turn this thing around, but I know that Chief Murad is, is working in that direction. I know the mayor's working hard in that regard, and uh, and I think we will get back there. Jen, let's take uh, one more call before we uh, take a quick break. And Matt from Williston joining us on Travels with Charlie and uh, my guest, Jen Morrison. Good afternoon, Matt. Hey, Commissioner. So I'm just wondering what your approach is with the legislature on affordability in Vermont. I mean, a challenge for recruiting and retention is having people be able to do their job and raise a family. And right now, it seems like that our legislator is out of touch with how much it's costing people to live here um, and move here. Second question and point is, you know, currently my family's on the receiving end of a violent crime, and this person, you know, was not locked up despite having a prior for the same thing and is out in the community with the opportunity to reoffend. And mm -hmm. the officers I worked with were really frustrated with the fact that they did their job and they can't get, you know, the court and the state's attorney to make sure that we're locking up the right people. 
Could you, you speak on those two points, please? Yeah, the affordability piece is huge, and it doesn't just impact law enforcement. It, it is across all sectors of government, and it is truly one of the governor's top priorities. It's really hard to ask people to relocate to Vermont uh, when our wages are not as competitive as some of the neighboring states, but yet the cost of living is high or higher in some circumstances. So um, I don't have a particular strategy vis-a-vis -vis the legislature as, a, as the Department of Public Safety, but across the state enterprise, I certainly am going to be doing everything I can to assist um, with the governor's priorities of making Vermont more affordable. You know, the second question, um, I, I'm probably going to have an equally not satisfying answer for you. Um, we need accountability at all levels of the system. And during the pandemic, we saw a lot of that go away. Um, and now we are faced with a tremendous backlog in the judiciary that slows down the delivery of justice. We have a short-staffed state's attorney's office. They are not immune to the same problem the police agencies are facing with staggering caseloads that they are being asked to handle and triage. Um, and we, we have slowly over the last 10 years eroded some of the levels of accountability in the community. We, it, it is very difficult to get anyone held prior to, uh, you know, prior to their um, adjudication process in a particular criminal matter. Um, we've seen bail reform happen. We've seen youthful offender and, and raise the age things chip away, not in any one intentional manner, but sort of all told to create a situation where perpetrators of crime are more likely than not going to be caught and released and put back out mm -hmm. in the community with no supervision or accountability until their next court hearing, which could be months down the road. So your frustration that you express as a crime victim, and let me say that I'm very sorry that this happened to you and your family. Everyone deserves to feel safe in their community and in their home. Um, but sadly, this is not uncommon. And it's one of the things we're going to be making a top priority as the new legislative session approaches is trying to bring back some common sense to uh, accountability at every level for low-level crimes and the higher-level crimes, crimes, but certainly for crimes against people and recidivists, people who continue to create problems in our community and make their neighbors feel unsafe. Jen Morrison, my guest this afternoon on Travels with Charlie. Uh, coming up in just a moment, we've got Jeff Weld with the Casella Waste Sustainability Spotlight. Jen, Commissioner of Public Safety, new to that position. Jen, let me ask you about 30-some-odd uh, years in law enforcement. Uh, how has policing changed since you started? And so many people will say things, for instance, that you know today's officer needs to be part social worker, part psychologist. Uh, can you comment on that? Well, for me personally, I've gotten older and I don't run as fast. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's real. <laughs> um, my days of chasing bad guys are gone. But, um, you know, I think what you just said is correct. We, through a variety of methods, because the world has become more complex, because information travels so quickly in the digital area, era has ushered in so many variables that need to be considered in real time, um, we're asking our police officers to do a lot and all those things you said, to be a social worker, a substance abuse treatment worker, 
uh, to be the great peacemaker and de-escalator, but also be ready to turn on a dime and use force when force needs to be used, but only use it in a way that no one gets hurt, but still accomplishes the mission. I mean, we are really creating um, some difficult circumstances, but as, you know, as big and broad as those expectations are, we're also adapting our hiring processes to identify people who have that capacity. We are growing our training environment and um, uh, topics that we train on to give police officers better tools out in the community. And we are, in fact, building up greater resources within community partners with uh, mental health, uh, the fields of mental health particularly, and other social service providers who can be part of the solution for us. we got to get away from calling the police for everything. We've got to get away from the police being the first call for every time something doesn't look right or yeah. feel right in a community. Jen, uh, but uh, just, just one more area before we uh, move on here. Let's touch on the, the opioid epidemic, which is statewide. It's, it's nationwide, for that matter. Uh, your thoughts on safe injection sites and certainly, uh, you know, the gang-related crime, which media seems hesitant to talk about, um, you know, a number of the, the, uh, the, the shootings in Burlington are, are mostly gang-related, and yet it's not reported uh, as, as such. And, and fentanyl uh, coming across the border, I know there's a lot there, and if you can squeeze it in in 60 seconds, uh, go for it. I'm going to skip right over the first part of your question, and I'm going to say that um, when we continually lack the ability to hold people accountable at all levels, as I just spoke about earlier, we may as well hold a sign out um, from at the borders of neighboring states saying Vermont is open for criminal enterprise. Come and sling your dope here, do your crime, make your profit. And that's what I'm concerned about is out-of-state criminal organizations profiting off the addiction and vulnerability of Vermonters. So we are going to be uh, suggesting some legislative changes and perhaps just tweaks, shall we say, uh, to try and get a, a higher degree of accountability for the people who are truly profiting at Vermonters' expense and who are preying on Vermont's most vulnerable. Well, uh, great to talk with you today, uh, Jen. Jen Morrison, Commissioner of Public Safety. Uh, and you've certainly got a, a lot on your plate. Uh, I know you got to get back to work. I appreciate your time here on Travels with Charlie. And congratulations, uh, you know, on your family as well uh, with a new grandchild and all of that thank going you. on. That's um, a lot a lot happening. And thank you for your service to Vermont, Jen. Oh, you're welcome, Charlie. It's always great to be with you. Take care. Take care now. All right, coming up next, Jeff Weld with the Casella Waste Sustainability Spotlight. We'll be right back here on Travels with Charlie, WDEV. The waste and resource management industry is a complex, integrated system that many people and communities take for granted. Trash, recycling, compost, we're all familiar with the terms, but maybe not the truths behind the waste industry. Want to learn more? Beyond the Bin is a podcast by Casella, which shines a light on what really happens to our waste and recycling. If you're interested in environmental sustainability and renewable resources, then check out this podcast. You'll learn about waste and recycling, meet members of the Casella team, and one episode even deals with beekeeping. Check it out online at www.casella.com forward slash beyond the bin. Welcome back. Travels with Charlie. Uh, you know, corn behind the glass this afternoon. Always trying to stump the host with the music. It's Tom Petty. Sunday 
running down a dream. I'm running down a dream here on Travels with Charlie. My guest this afternoon with the sustainability spotlight from Casella Waste, Jeff Weld, Director of Engagement. And Jeff was ready to jump in in case I didn't get that one. Jeff, good, good afternoon. Always appreciate you backing me up here. Always ready to jump in and, and lend a hand when it comes to Tom Petty. Well, thank you. Hey, Jeff, you've got a great uh, pilot program that Casella Waste is doing. It's going to be offered in the Burlington area. Let's talk a little bit about uh, this. You've partnered up with TerraCycle. Tell me about that. Yeah, we're, uh, we're really excited about this pilot program, Charlie. Um, called the TerraCycle Pouch by Casella. Um, and really what this pilot program is aiming to do is help our customers and, and others find a, a way to recycle some of those common household items that uh, are technically recyclable, but, you know, just don't work well with traditional recycling uh, methods. So, you know, we're aiming uh, to, to collect and target about 20 additional categories of materials, um, things like plastic film, uh, packaging, styrofoam, that multi-layer packaging. You know, you open up the, the box and it's got 16 different levels of packaging and then you don't know what to, where it goes. Um, yeah, we can all thank uh, Amazon, uh, you know, for all the the additional packaging that we get. It's not just, you know, you'll take the cardboard and we always wondered, you know, what do you do with the styrofoam? What do you do with the bubble, bubble pack? And one of the things that's always dogged me was, uh, you know, when, when Keurig came out with the coffee pods, and that's something that you're going to be able to do with this TerraCycle program is coffee capsules, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty exciting. We've, we've looked at a number of different ways, right, since those came on board because, you know, we really want to try to find a way to put them to a higher and better use. And, and TerraCycle has a program where, you know, we'll be able to collect them with this pouch, you know, TerraCyclePouch.com, um, and uh, collect the pods. We'll pick them up, um, send them back to TerraCycle, and, and they'll be able to put them to a higher and better use. So keep them out of the landfill and, and taking up a valuable space. Jeff Weld with the Sustainability Spotlight, Director of Engagement. My understanding, Jeff, is these recycled products, you're going to use them and produce some new products, and then you're talking about you know some benches that you'll donate back to the community. Is that correct? Yeah, one of the things that TerraCycle is able to do with a lot of this, this uh, material is create some things that go right back into the communities where they came. So you, you really have that view of, um, you know, what your recycling goes and gets made into. It's not just getting sent off some faraway place and, and forgotten about. It's actually being recycled and, and put back to back to use and a lot of times in support of the, the same communities that, that it comes out of. So that's a pretty exciting part of the program. So people can find out more information on the website, terracyclepouch.com. Uh, and, and, Jeff, let me ask you, this is uh, something that you're offering first just to the Burlington area. It's kind of a pilot program, right? Yeah, I think, you know, with any kind of pilot program, right, Charlie, the, the goal here is to test it out, make sure it works, find an, an area where we think it'll uh, be able to work, get the kinks out, and then, you know, really scale it to the broader community. I think what we're finding is, you know, anybody can join the wait list, right? You can go right to TerraCyclePouch.com, sign up, give us a, a, a firm understanding of what the demand is out there, 
and then really be able to scale it out out away from Burlington as well. So fantastic! So soon we'll be able to, you know, we don't have to worry about, you know, where does the styrofoam go or those coffee ca- uh, capsules or flexible plastics. Jeff Weld, director of engagement with Casella Waste Sustainability Spotlight. For more information, go to TerraCyclePouch.com. Jeff, have a great day. Thanks for joining me here on Travels with Charlie. Thanks for having us, Charlie. Appreciate it. All right. Up next, local author Stephen Russell Payne with his new novel, Based in Vermont. And in the 70s, you were always there. Coming up next, right here, Travels with Charlie, WDEV. Whether you're traveling for a vacation, planning a business trip, or have a global company looking for a strong Vermont-based company to align with for business and meeting management, Milne Travel is a trusted local partner, and they've been one since 1975. Milne Travel is one of the top travel companies based in New England. Featuring educational tours, vacation travel, or corporate solutions, let their travel specialists search the lowest airfares exclusive to the travel industry for you. Guaranteed. We're all getting ready to travel again. Save time and money on your next trip. Go to www.millentravel.com. I'm going to defer to the doctor on this one. Corn behind the glass this afternoon travels with Charlie. Don't let me down, Stephen Russell Payne, if you can name that tune. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. <laughs> well, your book's set in the 70s, so that uh, I think he's still got Dylan on his mind. Elton John, uh, I won't go where the title is because I'm not sure about FCC rules here on WDEV. Uh, the other radio station I worked with, uh, and certainly, uh, Dr. Payne can, uh, um, <laughs> agree that we got away with a lot on that program. It's such an honor and pleasure to have you back in studio with me here today on Travels with Charlie. Stephen Russell Payne, the author of You Were Always There. How you doing? Well, Charlie, it's great to, to be back on the air with you. It's been a while. But uh, I definitely appreciate uh, being able to talk about this new novel set up in northern Vermont, which I'm very excited about. Now, let me ask you, because I noticed on the book uh, you are a doctor. You were just retired uh, from doctoring, <laughs> a surgeon no less. When you don't say Dr. Stephen Russell Payne, you, you kind of dropped it. Well, it's those days are kind of behind me now. <laughs> I always tried to keep the doctoring and, and the authorship separate in a lot of ways. You have a very uh, diverse background, uh, to say the least. For people that do not know uh, Stephen Russell Payne, uh, you are a sheriff, uh, a surgeon, and an author. You have uh, this is your third book, which he used up Cliff. Oh, you, oh, wait a minute, six books were the other five. All of you had uh, Cliff, Cliff walking, Cliff walking, life on a cliff, life on a cliff. Writing my guitar, the Rick Norcross oh, story. Yes. You remember those yes, days? Yes, I do. Absolutely. That's when I thought the FEC was going <laughs> to uh, shut down the radio station. Well, we got talking about uh, the infamous bus that uh, that Rick used to drive and uh, ride, ride around in, the infamous pickle. The pickle. And, exactly. Uh, yeah, you can only bring that up so many times without you know kind of getting into an area where you shouldn't be going. But exactly. Um, let's let's talk about your latest book. Uh, you were always there, and. And it's set in the 70s, which initially, you know, for someone my age, your age, anyone that's listening that's in their in their 60s uh, or mid-60s, I should say, certainly they're going to get right in tune with this book and, and go back to an era that they're very, very familiar with. Yeah. 
I grew up in St. Johnsbury, uh, graduated from high school in 73, and it was a really tumultuous time, similar to what today is like with different details. And I remember in 1970, I had a very low draft number, as you did, as you told me, and probably was going to be drafted. And it was when Nixon um, got rid of the draft, I mean, by the skin of our teeth. And the anxiety level of my male colleagues primarily uh, at that time was, was pretty extreme. And I always kind of wanted to write about that time period. And this is really a coming-of-age love story about a farm kid who's 18, Luke Sims, who lives in a dilapidated farmhouse on the edge of town, taking care of his ill mother. And he's graduated from high school. He's working for the local um, sawmill and really not sure what his future holds, but he figures he's about to be drafted. And as luck would have it, uh, a federal judge, a powerful judge, is building a cabin on Caspian Lake. And he delivers a load of posts and beams one Saturday morning. And his life changes when he spies a beautiful um, blonde young woman sitting on the warm hood of a 67 red Mustang convertible. I didn't know what you were going to mention first, the red Mustang <laughs> or the beautiful blonde. Well, it was hard to decide. <laughs> but And uh, these two um, meet in a very unlikely um, situation, yeah. uh, totally different lives. Yeah. And their lives are really changed forever by having um, Sarah and Luke um, enter each other's lives. And the story is really the story of their lives um, to the end, pretty much. How much of this is uh, based? I know it's it's fiction. It's a novel. But you often wonder, based on anything in your – because it's your era. You know, you and yeah. I, class of 73. You know, I've been writing long enough now that pretty much every book, particularly the fiction, the novels, comes from an amalgamation of all kinds of things. Um, I was telling you earlier when I was a deputy sheriff uh, during summers in college, I would come home from Boston, and uh, one of my um, roots was uh, Hardwick. And some people will remember the Hardwick Fight Club uh, right on Route 15. And I can tell you uh, we had some interesting experiences um, working the Coles Pond Casino. I don't know if you ever heard of that. No, I haven't. No. So, you know, I had a lot of experiences growing up. And, and Howard Mosier, my dear friend and, and mentor, always – taught me that you've got to draw on your life experience. And this book um, really does that. I mean, it's all made up except for Dave Rowell and Dave Rowell's barn up here, courtesy of Dave. And um, I I changed his beautiful barn around a little bit, but a lot happens in that barn, as I think you found out. Yes, yes. And you also mentioned uh, Rick and the Ramblers as a a band playing in the barn. Yep, they get a mention, too. Yeah, yeah. So it's been really fun um, drawing on my Vermont roots, uh, but the book goes way beyond Vermont. And... uh, so it's it's exciting. Questions or comments from my guest this afternoon, Stephen Russell Payne. You were always there. His latest novel, 244-1777 or 1-877-291-8255. 
One of the things that struck me, uh, Stephen, and I haven't finished it yet. As you can see, I'm about uh, three-quarters of the way through. I told you before we went on the air where I'm at, and uh, just getting ready to read some letters and wondering what's in the, that. Uh, and I'm not going to give anything away here. You, I you brought s- some Kleenex for you for the end <laughs> oh, of the book. Oh, no! Oh, uh, but... <laughs> I just the the imagery that you bring up, and I started to take a list as I've gone through the book because I'm going, you know, we both grew up uh, in the 70s, graduated uh, class of 73, different high schools. I think we might have been, uh, you know, Rice High School. We know. played basketball against yeah, each other. Yeah, well, you're a much taller. You, you always won. Yeah, <laughs> you might have played against my brother. Um, the imagery that you said in the 70s, it just for anyone that grew up in that era, you're going to love this book because you're going to go, man, I forgot all about that. Uh, first off, the feelings of being drafted. We all had that. You and I were lucky in that the draft ended just before it was time for us to, to go in when exactly. we turned 18. Exactly. But that feeling was always there. I remember that. I remember the summers. Like, what's going to happen? What are you going to do? And that's in this book. You know, Luke is struggling with that uh, before he, you know, finds out. Uh, right, right. Uh, 8-track stereos. <laughs> Who didn't have an 8-track? Uh, and you, you, I don't know if you brought it up in there, but, you know, I think everybody had a – we had a friend that had a car. It was his dad's car. And, and you know, high school, you'd go driving and – uh, there were some illicit things going on, perhaps, in the car that we won't talk about right, right. now, speaking with a former sheriff. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you'd pop the A-track in, and you'd, you'd drive around and listen to music. I actually heard from, from a reader who's much younger than I am just recently, and she said, what in the world was an A-track? <laughs> oh, my and goodness. I, I literally remember having a pickup truck, and we used a um, – a wire coat hanger for the antenna, because they were all broken off. We'd, yeah. we'd stick it in on the hood, yeah. and we'd wire an 8-track with a bunch of wires into the radio speaker. I mean, it were pretty scratchy, <laughs> but we thought that was living. Yeah. Um, Narragansett beer, uh, Sweet Caroline. The 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 book uh, Love Story, the paperback, uh, it's featured in there. But you also, you know, some things that we tend to forget. Uh, to tell the truth, an old TV show. <laughs> and let me throw this one out here, too, just uh, to our listeners here on Travels with Charlie. 244-1777-1877-291-8255. If you have any memory of the 70s that you'd like to, to bring up, and perhaps it's in the book, um, Ski-Doos, you know. Uh, you know, now we call them snowmobiles, but it was always, you know, so-and-so had a Ski-Doo. Usually on the porch. <laughs> yeah, or on the front lawn <laughs> next to the, the washing machine. But one of the terms that you brought up in the book, and it just hit me, you know, uh, the great uh, Jimmy T, Jimmy T uh, Thurston, would be a guest on my old program many, many times. And I remember him coming in and talking about growing up, you know, in the kingdom and these things that they did, because Jimmy was a musician from age three or four years old, he said, you know, and uh, they'd have a kitchen tunk. Oh, yeah. And the first time I heard that, I got... What are you talking about? Kitchen tunk. Everybody'd get to, you'd move all the chairs on the table exactly. out and the musicians would come in and, and you'd, you'd have a, you know, a jam session basically. They called it a tunk and you mentioned kitchen tunk in there. You're familiar with kitchen tunk? I'm very familiar with them. In fact, friends of ours who live up on the Canadian border in Highgate, uh, for years had kitchen tunks. Um, Sally and, uh, 
Henry Forbes up there. In fact, I wrote a feature story for Tom Slayton for Vermont Life about kitchen tunks quite a number of years ago. And a lot of particularly the French-Canadian farmers um, responded that they really missed having them. You know, they, they would have them a few times a year yeah. and exactly clean the t- kitchen out. Everybody who had an instrument would come or not. And the food, I mean, the ones we went to were amazing. Yeah. I don't know how anybody played. Their stomachs were so full. <laughs> but, um, yeah, those are mentioned in here. And, and one of my favorite characters in this book is uh, Jed McCaffrey, who's a one-legged old Army vet who's a, basically a fiddle virtuoso. Yeah. He and went to Berkeley, right? He went to Berkeley, yeah. 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 And uh, I've heard from a number of people about Jed uh, has really touched them, who's a completely different person than Sarah, who lives yes. in Washington. and Who, who plays the violin. Plays the violin. Yes. As they always say, you spill champagne on violins and beer on fiddles. <laughs> and I never, you actually describe in the book uh, the difference between yeah. a, a fiddle and a violin. I always thought the same instrument, but no, they do something to the bridge. They right. whittle right. it down or something so you can... You know, really get it scratched or whatever. Different technique. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you also mentioned in the book uh, trying to preserve the rustic flavor of their community and something that Vermonters have always talked about, the Flatlanders are moving in. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. That's such a controversy that's been going on for probably a 100 years. And definitely at the center of this is this very fancy uh, cabin um, that's being built by this um, fairly well-off federal judge, yeah. and it's being built on uh, lands that they know had Native Americans um, there. And so there, there's a lot of conflict throughout the book um, regarding that. There's a, there's a lot going on in, in this story. There is. But it's, it's you know, primarily, I mean, it's a love story. I yeah. can see this this could be a movie. You know, we talked about this before we went on. I don't know who would play the, you know, the 18-year-old Luke or the, the 18-year-old Sarah. Do you have any numbers of people in Hollywood? Because I'd, <laughs> I'd be happy to call them. Well, you know, all the big stars now are, you know, you're, yeah. you're not going to get, you know, Tom Cruise, Leonardo DiCaprio. They're right. in their 50s, uh, so that wouldn't work. Uh, I mean, one of the things I try to do is make my stories very visual. You know, people will say yeah. when I do book events, you know, that I can really see. Uh, and it's not that I give tremendously deep description, but I try to give enough so you can see the the character in your own mind sort of thing. I just want to mention a couple of things. The the launch for the book is at Phoenix Books Burlington this coming Thursday, the 29th at 7. I'll be at the Greensboro Library for a benefit on Thursday, October 6th at 6.30, which I'm looking forward to. And the book's available right next door at Bridgeside Books and, and can get it through pretty much any bookstore anywhere, but I love this little bookstore next door here. I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, your use of uh, description in in this novel, Stephen, because that's the first thing that I, I really noticed. Very descriptive in painting pictures of the landscape, Luke's home, the old inn, and it really does give you a feeling of where this is all happening, even when they, well, I don't want to give anything away, yeah. but, you know, when they leave the air, when Luke leaves the area. Yeah. I even talk about Claus the cat 
but I don't want to scare anybody <laughs> off, so we okay. we won't get into that. <laughs> so, as I mentioned uh, before, we opened today. Uh, you know, a surgeon, uh, a sheriff, and 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 now writing. And of course, you were also writing while you were a surgeon. Is there any one calling? Is there something that you wanted to do? And you, well, you know, maybe like me, you know, I, I think I've had two or three yeah. careers and loved them all. I, I wrote my first book in sixth grade, believe it or not, about paratroopers from World War II after hearing my dad talk about them. And in seventh grade, Galway Cannell, the great uh, Vermont and American poet, came to our English class and he talked about what it felt like to need to write. I still remember it. And I remember even at that young age sitting there understanding what he was talking about. I've really had this bug to write and have been since I was a kid. And it's just been a passion my whole life. And, and it's really cool now. I have enough books out and enough of an audience that, you know, when I'm out there touring, a lot of people come that have read the other books and are anxious for the new one. And, and I, it's wonderful. I love it. You were always there, author Stephen Russell Payne, my guest this afternoon on Travels with Charlie. It's a novel. It's set in the 70s, Vietnam War. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, immediately you think of is with what's happening today, whether it's a conflict in the Middle East and soldiers going off to war, but they stay in touch with, uh, you know, with their cell phone. And and the mail plays such a large part in this uh, in this story. Yeah, it was, a, it was literally a different world back then. But I think a lot of the struggles and fears that people are dealing with now are spoken to in this book um, from the past because we're still the same humans regardless of, of how we communicate. Stephen Russell Payne, my guest this afternoon on Travels with Charlie, the new novel, You Were Always There. StephenRussellPayne.com for more information. And Payne is spelled P-A-Y-N-E. Thank you for that. He didn't feel as a surgeon it would be... <laughs> You're seeing Dr. Payne. This, is that a nickname or is that really, really? A, is that really his name? Such a, a pleasure to see you oh, again. Great to see you, Charlie. Thank you very much. And uh, you're also going to be at uh, the Substance Recovery Summit at the Champlain Valley Expo. On You'll be 30th. doing signings there. Yeah. That's uh, this Friday. So That's right. We'll see you then. Thank you so much for being my guest on Travels with Charlie and wonderful to see you again. Travels with Charlie, sponsored by Casella Waste Systems, Jolly Convenience Stores, Milne Travel American Express. My theme song is written and performed by Billy Bratcher. Executive producer, Brad Ferlin. The guy behind the glass, my director, Steve Cormier. I'm Charlie Papillo. I'll see you in my travels next show, October 10th, with Vermont-grown business, Cole's Cookies. There's going to be cookies in the studio. You I'll might, come back. You might want to be here for that one. Have a great day. <laughs>